This episode is brought to you by Naoki Takahashi, a Japanese restaurant in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at factors that will shape our food world in 2019. We start with trend predictions and how media covers them. A website could theoretically devote all their coverage to these viral trends and, and get all sorts of hits. That's not a way to build sustainable readerships, just as it's not a way to build you know, sustainable restaurants. We report on a big change coming and how street meat will be served. On January 1st, a ban on plastic foam went into effect in New York City. And we round out the episode with a story about using gene editing to create the spicy tomato of the future. At first, it sounds like a, like a gimmick or like something that you would do for fun. The truth is, there is a real value behind it. It's not too late to make your resolution. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode this year. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So welcome to uh, Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday here in Brooklyn. It's actually very warm today after a, a bit of a cold streak here across the country. Um, so this show is all about food writers, and I'm so blessed to talk with an amazing, brilliant food writer each week. But um, in the last week, we have seen a controversy uh, regarding one of our pretty much one of our you know biggest food writers of our age i think uh his book has only sold uh, like over 500,000 copies um that would be J Kenji Lopez Alt um he is the author of the food lab um originally a column on serious eats and last week he really sparked a controversy when he wrote a tweet and now Kenji is not anyone who is shy about using Twitter to voice his own opinions on usually food, but often other things, too. So everything from political issues of the day to making witty jabs at our president. So he uh, fired off a tweet saying that he would not serve any customers wearing a Make America Great hat at his restaurant Worst Hall. Um, that spiraled into uh, a huge backlash. So I, and then just yesterday, Kenji issued an apology, sort of walking back and saying that that was a sort of reckless thing to say, but you know, he wasn't trying to, um, he wasn't trying to spread hate. He was just trying to basically say, if you're hateful, don't come in here, I believe. But I don't know. It is an interesting topic, and um, I feel like it brings up a lot of interesting questions, but also one that I hear often, which is like, how politically active should you be if you're a food writer, food personality? I don't know. Uh, what does our engineer Jeet here think about that? Uh, yeah, so um, that's a tough one, because whenever you start to get into the political space when you start to make comments especially if you're you know a well-known public figure yeah like, yeah it just you just have to be careful and you have to be ready for you know the consequences that will probably come with that yeah <laughs> you know? and he did he dealt with consequences i guess in yeah. his the way that he felt was best and you know said you know i'm not perfect but that's you know yeah I, exactly and um i do like i'm not i don't know if i can say if it was right or wrong what he said but you know if you're uh, you're gonna say comments like that. It can definitely polarize, you know, your your uh, your audience. Mm -hmm. so. It does polarize, and and I don't think that he, I don't think a lot of 
food writers necessarily care. They're just sort of being themselves, right? right? right. So it's like there's b- this balance between being your true self exactly. and then worrying about this huge platform that you're supposed to have. But and like you said, I don't think he he would have said it in like a very like hateful way. I think no, but he might have just it might have so, been very tongue in cheek. It's so divisive now. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. I I don't know. It's 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 hard to say, but I just hope that folks keeping themselves hopefully right. you know and it doesn't like make people like be like okay i guess i should just stick to r- talking about food only because right right it's also about the personality absolutely as, as we hear each week on this show you know it's not we're not everyone is writing about basically themselves mm-hmm. not just food um so anyway it's uh We'll see how that continues. Uh, that story continues on. I, I find it really interesting how many things it erases. But right, right. Uh, well, thanks, Jeet, for chiming in on that. Yeah, no worries. And um, so, speaking of prolific writers, food writers, but also my guest today is just a, a brilliant novelist of fourteen novels. She has also written memoirs, and uh, her latest book is a collection of essays all about food. It is called Kitchen Yarns: Notes on Love. Life, love, and food. So, welcome to the show, Anne Hood. Hi, Kathy. How are you? Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for joining. And uh, I, was, I was thinking about what you guys were talking about. What, yeah. a, what a complicated uh, situation it is. You know, when you're in the public eye like that, um, everything you say can snowball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> everything you do, right? Yeah. And it can make one feel a little bit more like they have to censor themselves, I, I wonder. I know, I know, which doesn't seem fair either. Mm-hmm. Right, because you're like also like that artist who gained that, represent- exactly. Yeah, that exactly. reputation. So, you know, it's, it's tough. But um, on, to, on to you again. And now, <laughs> I mean, you've written so much throughout your career. Um, why all of a sudden now write about uh, dedicate your, a book all about food notes throughout your life? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I didn't realize how often I wrote about food oh. until my editor pointed it out to <laughs> me. Um, so some of these essays were written years ago. Mm. Um, they've been published in all sorts of places from Food and Wine and Bon Appetit to mm-hmm. more literary journals like um, Tin House. And um, I, I won a second best food, write, uh, best food Writing Award, and my editor said, hey. I'd love you to collect all those essays. Yeah. I said, well, I don't have any. <laughs> I just have a couple. <laughs> She's like, I don't think so. And so I went and looked through my files, and you know, going through them and seeing how often food did come up for me as sort of a, an entryway into bigger topics, mm-hmm. um, I realized that partially, I think, because I grew up in an Italian household and food was sort of at the center of everything we did. You know, at dinner, we're talking about what's for lunch the next day. And uh, I grew up with just good food all around me. It seems like it just, I associate it with love and home Mm -hmm. and um, sometimes the loss of those things, you know. So um, after she pointed that out to me, I spent a couple years well, when I wrote essays, if they had to do with food, I added them to the pile until we had what seemed to me, although their essays kind of a narrative arc, you know, that yeah. you go through my life through food. Yes. And it's interesting because you you have written memoir, uh, that whole genre. You've written nonfiction. You had a mm-hmm. best-selling memoir called Comfort, A Journey Through Grief. Um, yeah. So you've written about your life, but now sort of taking food as the as the sort of 
connective tissue <laughs> for this yeah. collection. Well, I always, you know, I'm such a big fan of uh, MFK Fisher. Mm-hmm. And I read once in an, in an interview that she said, why does everyone say I write about food? I write about love. Uh, yeah. And I think sort of that makes sense to me that food is just a way to talk about those big emotions. Now, you invoke um, some famous food writers like MFK mm-hmm. Fisher um, quite, you know, early on, right from the beginning, you're, you're mentioning Laurie Colwin, the author mm-hmm. of Home Cooking. So, yeah. yeah, wondering if you're, if those are some inspirations um, of yours and if you have other write, food writing, food writer inspirations. Well, it's interesting because I became a fan of Laurie Colwin through her fiction. Uh-huh. And then she started writing for Gourmet Magazine. She had that monthly um, column. And so, of course, I loved those, too. But I was sort of a, a fangirl of hers, you know, went to a reading of hers early in the 80s um, at Three Lives Bookstore in Greenwich Village, near where I used to live, and where I still oh, wow. half-time live. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that was all for her fiction. So she, I, I kind of relate to her, I think, because she's a novelist yeah. and short story writer who also happened to love food and wrote beautiful essays about it. So I did have her and home cooking in mind as I compiled these. And, of course, my first essay in the book is about the silver palette, uh-huh. <laughs> which was a game changer for yeah. me. You know, um, I think everybody of a certain age in the 80s, that was our Bible. You know, how many dinner parties did I go to where chicken marbello was served? <laughs> I don't know, a lot. And, of course, my favorite food writer is my husband, Michael Holman. So. Of course. <laughs> yes, that doesn't hurt to be surrounded by uh, a food writer in your own household. So. Exactly. And what does he exactly. think of uh, your book, Kitchen Yarns? Oh, he loves it, and he did a lot of my recipe testing. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Well, the ones that weren't straight from the silver palette, no. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Only two from the silver palette. But, yeah, um, it was interesting because having never done this before, when my editor said, okay, the recipes have all been tested, and I said, tested? Uh, and she said, who tested them? I said, me, it's what I cook. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've been making them my whole life, mostly. And she said, oh, no, they have to be tested. And I went into a, a real panic, <laughs> but then just looked at the person across from me and said, aha. <laughs> That's perfect. No, I love that you sort of pay homage to to folks right from the beginning, and also your inspiration of the Silver Palette is a very fitting first essay for this book. Is the book that really impacted your your cooking? Yeah, well, yeah it was really um, the first cookbook that I could use and succeed. You know, I, uh, I had a lot of wonderful okay. cookbooks, like the Moosewood Cookbook. Oh, that one and, didn't uh, work for you too well? Or? Well, it, you know, a couple things did. Like, I always made gazpacho. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and then I had Laurel's Kitchen when I went through my vegetarian phase, and I made, you know, the worst pizza ever for, for parties. You know, I don't know how people <laughs> ate it. Not because of Laurel's Kitchen, but because of my poor cooking skills. And Kitchen. Think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think my um, the silver palette came at just the right time when I finally had some culinary skills down, mm, and the recipes yeah. seemed so contemporary at the time, you know, oh, instead of yeah. heavy French food or sort of simplified Betty Crocker stuff, which they also used to make. Isn't, um, it, isn't it interesting that maybe it's just like you had to be in the right time and place in your life for a cookbook to really click? I think that's true, because I certainly had cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And I could mess up those recipes. I, I still remember making a chicken Kiev 
from the Betty Crocker cookbook, which I got as a graduation present from somebody. Okay. And um, I just used all dried spices, and it was terrible. And probably I used Did margarine. They? I mean, I don't really remember. But <laughs> it was a terrible chicken Kiev. And that's a reflection of maybe the food recipes writing of the times, right? Because they told you to use dried basil. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's not your fault. <laughs> no. just... Thank you. I'm, I'm exonerated. <laughs> But I remember going to the the Silver Palette. They Mm -hmm. they used to have like a little takeout store on the Upper West Side Mm. and getting tarragon chicken salad. And I mean, it's ridiculous to say it was life-changing, but I'd never had fresh tarragon or any tarragon. Mm. And and then being able to buy tarragon and make that at home. I mean, it was really, so just this kind of confluence of events, you know, that I Mm -hmm. thank the Silver Palette for. And you've been there and you've tasted it so you can recreate it at home. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's important. And uh, you mentioned the chicken marbella. So I'm mm-hmm. a little younger. I'm not too familiar with this, but you write beautiful essay about how you skipped an ingredient, the white wine, by accident, mm-hmm. and it still mm-hmm. came out amazing. Yes, um, I used to call it my no-fail mm-hmm. dish. I made it all the time. You make it the day ahead or the night before, and it just you can bake it and then serve it at room temperature. And it has all these yummy things. Um, like I think it calls for dried? either prunes or apricots. Yeah. I use both, you know. Both. And um, I cut way back on the sugar because there's a lot of brown sugar on top. But it always comes out great. I had a dinner party where I was trying to impress a, a bunch of people who I was new to this kind of social group. And I realized that I had forgotten the wine and it still came out delicious. And so I decided to make it for my now husband, for Michael, when um, the first time I cooked for him. Oh, and it came out just terrible. It failed. Oh. So my no fail recipe can fail. <laughs> I left out the olives. I left out the parsley. I, I left out so much stuff. I had all my mise en place because I knew I'd be like dizzy with love and wouldn't think straight. So I mm. did everything ahead of time. And then I just left it all on the counter. <laughs> and so you can actually leave out too many. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure you had a good time anyway. Then it sounds like <laughs> sometimes nothing like a little failure to bring people closer together. Um, I want to I wanna definitely hear a little tidbit from this um, book so everyone listening can get a taste of what some of these beautiful essays are all about. Um, but we're going to cut to, looks like a time for a quick little commercial interlude. Okay. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Naoki Takahashi, a restaurant in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. When you dine at Naoki Takahashi, you'll feel like you've been transported to Japan. Sample a little bit of everything with kaiseki menus, or let Chef Naoki lead the way with his omakase menu. A la carte and vegetarian dishes are also available. Learn more at naokitakahashi.com. That's N-A-O-K-I-T-A-K-A-H-A-S-H-I.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot-rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. 
All right, we're back chatting more with Anne Hood. She's the author of many books, and her latest is called Kitchen Yarns, Notes on Life, Love, and Food. And Anne, I love how you depict so many different sort of cooking personalities through that throughout this book um, with your family members, um, from your Thank mom. You. Yeah, like so there's yourself, but then your, your mom who has a little bit more fancy presentations, although her repertoire sounds somewhat more limited. <laughs> uh, she yeah. only made a few things. But then yeah. there's your grandmother who was all about like no recipes. And you just feel it out and, you know, the typical sort of grandma style right. of putting together a meatball. And, um, but I loved reading this essay about your dad so much because it sounds like his cooking was, well, you know, you're very nostalgic <laughs> about it. It was objectively very bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. <laughs> um, and what was even worse is once um, he retired, which he did kind of on the young side, mm-hmm. he took over all the cooking. Right. So we ate it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but yet... Okay, I don't want to spoil too much, but would you mind reading a little bit from this one? Absolutely. This is called My Father's Pantry. Okay. My father fed me shake-and-bake pork chops, rice-a-roni, always together and always gummy, with a side of canned peas swimming in margarine. Meatloaf mixed with dried onion soup served with so much ketchup, I don't even remember how it tasted. He wrapped chicken, canned potatoes, cream of mushroom soup, and a hefty dose of poultry seasoning in tinfoil, cooked it on the grill, and called it chicken bountiful. I stayed thirsty for a week after eating it. When he made me a grilled cheese sandwich, he pressed it so flat I could have used it as a Frisbee. He burned it on one side. The other side was hardly cooked at all. He served that grilled cheese with Campbell's tomato soup made with milk instead of water and spiked with lots of celery salt. He put sugar in scrambled eggs, salt on watermelon, and orange American cheese on apple pie. I did the same, not because it tasted good, but because I liked the oddity of it. Pass the salt, I'd say, when I grabbed a slice of watermelon. My father would nod. That's right, watermelon has no flavor without salt. When he made mac and cheese, he used that same orange American cheese, a basic white sauce, elbow macaroni, his beloved celery salt, and dried mustard. He called it baked baked macaroni. It was his specialty. Celery salt was his favorite spice, his secret ingredient. All to say, my father was not a good cook, but he thought he was. He would say, you like that fancy coffee, huh? Me, I like Colombian. Then he would show me a brand new can of Maxwell House. This was not intended as a joke. He believed that eating chestnuts and mangoes could be fatal. The fuzz on a peach could send him running in circles, screaming. After he baked a ham with ginger ale, canned pineapple, and maraschino cherries, he put the ham bone in a big pot of water with dried navy beans and simmered it all day. This dish actually tasted good. I used to sop the broth up with Italian bread while my father hovered around me, beaming. My father's packaged cakes fell, his pie crusts burned, his roasts were too dry, his pancakes too wet. But he fed me and fed me and fed me, and I opened my mouth and ate. Thank you so much, Anne, for reading from that beginning of the essay. Um, I think that um, as it goes on, um, it, you know, the, 
It's just your father's personality really shines through. I love that he was so proud and totally not not sarcastic at all about loving <laughs> <laughs> the things that he did with food. He was quite proud of them. Yes. And um, some of those some of those concoctions, like the chicken bountiful, sound very interesting. Um, and you know, I think if you used real potatoes. <laughs> Instead of canned. And not cream of mushrooms, but some other kind of liquid with mushrooms. The idea is not bad. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you write later on that you, you know, craved some of these foods that he would make for you. Oh, I, I have to tell you, this is, uh, you know, embarrassing, perhaps. But no. I will still some nights make sure you make pork chops and rice aroni. It's just, you know, as I was saying earlier, like food is such a portal mm-hmm. to emotion. But sometimes when I miss him, I just want that food. And I still make his macaroni and cheese. Um, I don't use the orange American cheese, however. <laughs> but the basic idea with the white sauce and, and a little bit of dry mustard and a little celery salt, I always get great compliments when I make mm. them. One thing I really loved about reading this essay was your father's attitude was so positive. You, you know, you mentioned he was like whistling as he cooked. He would set the table just so. He took care yeah. into things and he really enjoyed it. And I think that that attitude when you're cooking is it it lends itself to the dish no matter what. <laughs> I I agree with you. It, yeah. it was kind of a uh, contrast to my Italian grandmother who had been cooking for 70 years. She had had 10 kids, was still cooking for a boatload of people, mm-hmm. and was kind of a cranky cook. <laughs> so it was nice right. when my father entered the kitchen and everything was an experiment mm-hmm. and a delight to him. You know, That was his attitude about everything, <laughs> but he was just a funny personality. You know? <laughs> and, you know, it's a pretty big contrast, too, to the, um, the working mother, that image of, you know, somebody striving really hard to make something perfect, or, you know, you depict yourself in this, you know, striving to make something that was impressive for a date, or, yeah. you know, friends of friends who are fancy and sophisticated, yes. um, that sort of nervousness, and um, am I good enough, you know, is this going to be good enough feeling is, you know, that's common, but it's... Uh, yeah. You know, it's everyone has a different take on it, and I really enjoyed reading that. Um, you know, that that sort of attitude can make a big difference, yeah, no matter what yeah. it is. And that's why we loved the food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How could we not? We want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> well, but he is. Uh, I'll tell you, he is the one who, who gave me like a basic uh, roast chicken recipe that I still use. I don't use a particular one. Um, but he just said, always put something moist in it, you know, mm. lemons, apples, whatever, and garlic, and very simple. But basically, I use his chicken roast chicken recipe still. And does it make it moist, putting a lemon or chicken? Does it help? I mean, sorry, I or an apple? I don't know if it does, but, I, you know, I always say I still do whatever my father told me. <laughs> so he told me it did, so I say yes. <laughs> hey, can't hurt, right? Right. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, throughout this book, you have many different portraits of people, really, through food and yourself, ultimately. Yes. Um, do you think that cooking is a, is a portal to a person's personality? I do think so. You know, it's funny because uh, my mom passed away last year mm. and um, she always told me I could not make 
good meatballs that hers, uh. you know, my son has the magic touch, but mine are too soft. Oh, right. um, but I used to always tease her because she would always say, I just made like 26 meatballs. She always counted them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but she was an accountant. Uh-huh. She was a Virgo, so she had everything, you know, in order, very methodical. So, no, of course, she counted her meatballs. Mm. And it's just, you know, an example of a small thing she did that really reflected her bigger personality. Right, right. I love that section about the meatballs and how, you know, there's no recipe, but you're always trying to trace down how to make it well. Yeah, without, yeah. And I love the, uh, who is this uh, Auntie June, she's so funny. She's she's like the backseat driver or like the the cackling bystander who laughs at your attempts every time. Exactly. <laughs> Meanwhile, she has never cooked a thing. <laughs> right, but she's like, she, it's just like recording voices like, oh, it tastes just like the ladies up the street. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which was not a compliment. <laughs> no, not a compliment. <laughs> Oh, so what is the secret to the meatballs, do you think? Have you mastered it by now? Well, you know, I, I think they're getting better. Okay. <laughs> my son came home last week. He lives in New York. And he came home, and um, I had sauce and sausage ready. But he said, I'll do the meatballs. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he said that the secret that my mom told him was, you don't start with them as a ball. Mm. You start with them flat. Oh. In your hand See. and kind of move it into a ball to tighten them. That mm. makes no sense to me, what? but he did it and they weren't, the texture was right. So oh. <laughs> maybe it's onto something. Wait, so you start with like a pancake type thing and then you yeah, push in it your palm. into, okay, a more. Yeah, you, you move that it like in a sense. circular motion, picking it up. Okay. Until you get a ball. You know, a lot of people will take a clump and then they don't mm-hmm. have enough and they'll try to take another clump and attach it and then it doesn't ever stick together, right? No, that is a bad way. Yeah. <laughs> Even I know that. Yeah. And that's when it'll fall apart for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to try your Go-Go's meatball recipe in this book. Um, They're so simple, and mm-hmm. it's, but a lot of it is really doing it by feel mm-hmm. because um, the breadcrumbs, she adds in at the end. Mm. And so you have to just add like a quarter cup, mix it and see if it feels right and you have to yeah. get, you know, just a lot of it's the texture. A lot of it is the feel because these things you can't, you know, you can be really scientific about it, but how, how dry is your yeah. breadcrumb and mm-hmm. X, Y, Z ingredient. And I, and I also say that now I've been making the sauce for a year, mm-hmm. the, the marinara, we call it gravy, but the red sauce. And I will say that mine is better. <laughs> I think mine is better than hers. <laughs> well, there you go. But she thought hers was better than hers. Okay. Mother, so maybe this is the thing. But I think it's because I use better ingredients. Ah, right, right. And, so- and I tend it all day because she had gotten to the point where she could do it in her sleep and, and practically did. Mm. But I'm like at the stove always tasting and I adding see. and adjusting. And, and I think I've got it down. Sounds like. Maybe she was over it, the experimentation part, and you're still evolving. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it looks like we're almost about time, but it's Sunday. Um, It's also Super Bowl Sunday. Wondering if you're cooking anything tonight. Um, My husband's making chili. Oh, perfect. (laughs) That sounds great. Is that a tradition? 
No, we don't okay. even. I don't even know if we're going to watch the Super Bowl. I'm mm-hmm. sorry to say that. That's but fine. he's also making falafels because he's testing recipes for his own cookbook. Oh. So it's an odd combination, but that's what's on the menu. Chili and falafel. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey. I don't know if I recommend this. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Maybe it'll be great. Maybe maybe that combo will make it into his book. I don't know. I, maybe. They will definitely be great. I can't wait till I see whatever it is in a book form. <laughs> um, and Anne, are you working on any books right now coming out? You know, or? I'm working on a novel. So oh, I, I hope it'll be out sometime next year. Mm-hmm. But novels are, are different, you know, in that... Um, uh, there's a lot more revision and thinking and planning and essays. You know, I love writing essays and they come together so nicely thematically, whereas mm-hmm. novels, all the imagination. So yeah. hopefully I'm close. All right. Well, con- congrats on the new novel and good luck with that. And, Thank you. And it was such a delight talking with you. Um, Wonderful talking with you, too. Yeah, so I, I definitely hope everyone gets their hands on Kitchen Yarn's Notes on life, love, and laughs, I might add. There are some plenty of laughs in this book and food. All right. Well, thanks. Thank every- you. Thank you so much, Anne. And thanks, everyone at Heritage Radio. We'll see you next week on Ear Words. Eat Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.